On this episode, we bring on a special guest to talk everything real estate. Welcome to Think at Heart. Okay, welcome to episode number 12, Think at Heart. I'm Scott Goodfellow. This is Ben Hart. As usual, we're the Hello. Heart Investment Group. You can find us pretty much on every social media platform there is. Just search up Heart Investment Group and you'll find us in there somewhere. Same thing uh, on the World Wide Web, as they call it. Just Google Heart Investment Group and you'll find us there too. The thing I always forget to say too is you got to like and subscribe these videos if you're watching on video. It helps us get found more, so that would be very helpful if everybody could do that. And if you're listening on audio, if you give us a five-star review. Okay, now that that's over with, I'm pretty – I have mixed emotions about this this episode. Ben, as you know, I came from real estate. I spent 20 years in the industry. And from an industry standpoint, this episode is kind of like, you know, when the ex-girlfriend meets the new girlfriend. That's true. That's true. And it's kind of that awkward moment. You're the new girlfriend, right? Exactly. From industry standpoint, let's be clear about that. I'm just not sure what side to take. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. they meet and you're like, oh, hi, you know. Yeah. So it kind of feels like that. I'm a little, so it might take me a while to, to ease into it, but uh, here we go. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest, Renee McNeil from uh, Mortgage Brokers Ottawa. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, great. Great to have you. Ben, why don't you kick us off with some questions? Well, actually, why don't we start with Renee? Why, why don't you first tell us, because so that we don't forget, where people can contact you if they're looking for mortgage help in the Ottawa area? Just like you said, pretty much every social media platform that is out there. So it's pretty simple. It's Renee McNeil Mortgages on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Renee spelled a little different because my mom wanted to be special. So it's R-E-N-I. Pretty easy to find me on there. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I've been calling you Rennie since I found out that we're doing this. So uh, we'll try to stick. We'll try to get it right. You're not the first. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you get that a lot. Yeah, exactly. A lot. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? I've been in the finance industry for about 15 years now, previous to being a mortgage agent, which will be three years in May, actually. My previous life was with a large financial institution where I did a little bit of everything. Financial advisor on a, a lower scale, not quite the same as, as Ben here for sure, but jumped into management after that. And probably that was something that helped me gear towards wanting to be self-employed at the end. <laughs> I went out and joined Mortgage Brokers Ottawa, like I said, just about three years ago and been loving every second since. Awesome. So you're kind of like on the other side, right? Like from the industry X standpoint, like we're the X we are kind of the from ex, the yeah. industry side. Yeah. Right? Oh man, this is like a weird thing. So the the role that Renee left before before she became mortgage agent, the manager that was in there now also just left and did the same thing. I uh yeah. wondering, yeah, that's like the hot seat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just to get rid of it. Man, maybe we're in the wrong industry, Ben. Maybe we should become mortgage <laughs> brokers. <laughs> maybe by the end of this well maybe. that's what i was gonna say maybe by the end of it yeah. <laughs> okay ben why don't you uh kick us off with the questions there and i'll jump in with uh sure yeah, yeah. insights yeah renee and i have known each other i'm gonna guess probably 10 years or so now so we've worked uh certainly in our previous lives we worked uh, together on uh working together with joint clients and uh we also you know often did joint events together and certainly have a high amount of respect for Renee, and she's also done personal business for us as well on the mortgage side. So 
excited to uh, to have a good conversation with you tonight and uh, see where it goes. Obviously, you know, I get lots of conversations with clients about real estate. And, uh, you know, one of those challenges is not to get into uh, an argument with them, just trying to find out what it is they're looking for. And so uh, so this should be great. Uh, housing market's been on fire and certainly look forward to having a discussion with you uh, tonight. So I'd like you to start maybe and really kind of just tell me a little bit about what uh, Mortgage Agent does, you know, what kind of role there you have and, and what it is that uh, you do right now. A mortgage agent uh, benefits, and I get asked this question quite a bit because a lot of my previous clients from my other institution still reach out to me. So, you know, it's kind of hard because when you're somewhere for 11 years and doing mortgages for these clients, they always think that that specific location is the best and they don't necessarily see the benefit of, of what I'm doing now. The big thing is, is kind of a one-stop shop. So with one application, one credit check, I can shop around for my clients at over 60 different lenders that I have access to. Another big benefit as well is, you know, there's the A lenders, the big banks with people with perfect income and perfect credit and, you know, some established history for themselves. But not everyone always fits that bill. A lot of self-employed people, you know, try to claim as little as possible on their taxes. So it makes it harder to to get, especially into the Ottawa market today. Um, We have different categories of lenders that we're able to use. So it's not just kind of a one product, one box type of solution that I have. So it's great because I can pretty much get anybody a mortgage. It just might look a little different than the standard people are used to. Yeah, for sure. That's, I didn't even know there were 60 lenders out there. (laughs) Way more. Yeah, way more. Okay. I thought there was six, right? All the big banks and that's it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So where, who are all the lenders? Like besides the banks, like who else is the one that comes to the market? Name them alphabetically. (laughs) How long do we have? Um, You know, there's a lot of what people would call monoline lenders, trust companies, credit unions. So, you know, there's the alternas out there and we have uh, MCAP, which is a big kind of monoline lender. So meaning they only do mortgages. And a lot of those times I kind of gravitate towards some of these lenders because they can pass along some lower interest rates to my clients. Their prepayment penalty calculations are much more favorable than the big banks. And they have all the same perks that kind of the big bank lenders do. So I could list a million of them and I'm probably going to get in trouble with some of my favorite lenders for not mentioning them, uh, but there's definitely lots that I, I have access to. Yeah. So since you've worked in the business a long time, how different is this market today than it was, you know, 10 years ago? What's what's happening? What's going on right now? I can see a difference even from three years ago when I started. Three years ago, we weren't waiving conditions on almost every single offer a client was putting in on a home. These days, if we tell a client they can't waive a condition on their on their purchase agreement or their offer of purchase, they're out of it. Like there's no way that they're winning. So it's a really, really tough market. It's changes by the minute. We see rate changes multiple times a day over the past year, especially with with everything going on. Some regulation changes have happened. Lenders gotten a little bit more strict with documentation and income confirmation and things like that. So 10 years ago, I would say, oh, you're working? Perfect. Give me a pay stub. Here's your mortgage. Have a great day. I basically need blood tests these days. It's crazy. (laughs) I'm familiar with that as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe I can just jump in to add to that, Ben. I just uh, I was just wondering how it works now because you're in situations where there's multiple offers 
Well, as far as the appraisal, right? Because that's part of what you do. You have to get an appraisal. So you see some places in Ottawa going for a hundred up to four hundred thousand dollars over asking price. How does that affect? Like, will they? You have to get a, an appraisal before a mortgage, right? Typically. Or and will they sometimes deny it if they if they don't think the value's there or how does that work? Yeah, we've seen that. So typically if it's a high ratio mortgage, so less than a purchase with less than twenty percent down, the default insurer, so Seguin, CMHC or Canada Guarantee, will do uh, an appraisal on their own on the back end. So that that's kind of a little bit simpler for my clients. If it's twenty percent down or more, so a conventional mortgage, some lenders will want to have an appraisal to make sure the value is accurate. So at those situations where we know we might want to waive the financing, we're preemptively going in and maybe doing an appraisal ahead of the offer if okay. the sellers will allow it, so that we know the value is there. Because if we waive all financing and a lender comes back or the insurer for that matter comes back after they waived and said we want to make sure this value is as you're purchasing it for and it comes in less the client is responsible to pay the difference in their own cash or savings whatever it is three times in the last two weeks probably really so it is happening yeah, yeah. it's getting a little crazy i find appraisers are getting a little bit more cautious when this all started they were just nine out of ten the appraisals will come in at what the purchase price was there's kind of okay someone bought it for that it's worth it but lately we've seen them come in 40 50 thousand under what the purchase price is so lenders will always take the lower of the purchase price or the appraised value so does the appraiser have any liability there I'm sure they do. I mean, I don't know their back ends, but they do. I mean, if the value is not there, it just simply isn't there. They answer to some type of regulatory board as well. So they definitely have to make sure they, they make that the value is accurate. Is, yeah. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't remember a time that I've ever seen, seen this, this kind of action in the market. So I'm mm-hmm. sure it's interesting for you. It's busy. <laughs> just on that vein too. So just to follow up to what Ben said there. So are you expecting maybe because there's been such a rush to the market, maybe a correction in the near future, or do you just expect to just stay on the rope it's been on? It might be an unpopular opinion, but I hope not. It's tough. I mean, we do see values increasing dramatically when the conversations that I've had with some of my my partners, I think Ottawa's a little bit behind some of the other major cities in Canada anyway. So we're kind of playing catch up to that. Yeah. On top of that, we get a lot of spillover from Toronto and things like that, especially now with people being able to work remotely. Yeah. So they're coming here, they're able to afford homes that they can't in their cities. Mm-hmm. We might see a plateau a little bit, maybe. In my opinion, I'm, I'm not I don't think so too much because the demand is there. Like I have people that have been looking for homes for three years and they can't find one. So the demand is there. Yeah. I was talking to my brother who's a real estate agent, uh, Jordan Goodfellow real estate, shameless plug, keep the change. But he was saying that he thought it was a correction up, right? Like he thinks with auto has been undervalued for so many years. So kind of just like what mm-hmm. you said that now it's just correcting up. And now, like you said, maybe it'll plateau. But other than that, we're kind of at where we're going to be at. It's good for business. Yeah, yeah well, that's a, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> so how are first-time homebuyers getting into this market? Are they? What's happening? What are you seeing there? What, what's the clientele like? Some are and some aren't. Yeah. You know, if they're on a, a strict budget, and I mean, 50000 60000 is a fantastic annual income. Yeah. But I mean, you can't afford a home on that anymore. Even the condo prices, because the condo fees can be huge in the city. It puts them right out of the market. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing more and more where family members, particularly parents, mm-hmm. are helping with the down payment. Gotcha. So they're giving the down payment to be able to get in that price range that they need and or they're co-signing. They're going on the mortgage because without it, they're not going to get in. 
it's one thing too, though, getting having the down payment and being able to get into the market. But it's another thing also being able to afford those pay, most monthly payments. If you're getting a condo for three, four hundred thousand, or a townhouse for five or six hundred thousand in the West End, those payments, if you're making forty or fifty or sixty thousand dollars, that'd be pretty, uh, pretty tight squeeze, I think. Yeah, it is. I mean, the good thing, you know, everyone's worried that we're going to overextend everybody. They're not going to be able to afford the homes and the mortgage payments that they have when rates do start going up. But, you know, since 2016, when the stress test came into effect, we qualify everybody on 4.79%. So, you know, if I'm giving you a mortgage today at two, to see that rates are going to go up two plus percent over the next five, six, 10 years. I mean, it's possible, obviously, but, um, you know, we've been qualifying people at that higher rate to try to shelter them from not being able to afford it when when things change down the road. Yeah, so that's a good point. So maybe clarify a little bit what happened with those changes. So I think not everyone's familiar with, with what that means and what you're talking about. In 2016, the regulators for decided to put in some different rules for us to kind of shelter us from what happened in 2008 and what was happening in the U.S., where people just literally couldn't afford their homes anymore when interest rates went up from what they originally signed on their mortgage agreements. So they put in what they call the stress test. And it at the time, I think it started at 5.25, to be honest. And they just tried to say, okay, so if we put someone in a mortgage today for 3%, And in five years, when they're up for maturity, if it's gone up to 4% or 5%, we want to make sure that they could still afford it Mm -hmm. in the industry. I mean, we all think it's a little bit of overkill for that. I mean, that that is a big jump on on qualifying rates anyway, Mm -hmm. but it is to protect the clients. The difference is, if someone gets used to paying $1,700, $2,000 a month, Even if rates don't go up to 4.79, if they even go from two to three, three and a half, that's a big jump in payment. So there are people that can get overextended, but it was basically a set of regulations and rule changes back then that they they put in place to try to shelter us and make sure we didn't crush the market, I guess, or crush people's (laughs) incomes. Yeah, for sure. So when you yeah. say when you say afforded, I mean I still think people don't completely know TDSR, GDSR. Like maybe you can tell me, describe what that is, and maybe give us an example of what that means, and so that we can maybe uh, simplify it for people. So TDSR is total debt servicing ratio, and basically what that means is your monthly income versus your monthly liabilities I ha- that you have, including your mortgage payment. So monthly liabilities that we factor in are car payments, student loans, lines of credits, credit cards, personal loans, basically every type of credit facility that reports to your credit bureau. GDSR is just the home expenses. So if there's a condo fee, property taxes, heating cost, and we have to have a certain number. So GDS is at 39%. So you can't be over 39% of your income uh, versus your home debt. And TDS is 44% maximum. So you can't have you know your total debts with your home expenses higher than 44% of your income earning. Is that your gross income or your net income? Gross. Gross, okay. Which is another factor too, right? Because we don't see our gross. Nobody does. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's a good point. So that 2% uh, buffer that you put on or that 4.97 that you say, yeah, your, your, your debt scores have to be under those ratios in order to qualify, what you're saying. That's on A side of lending. So big banks, A lenders. Now, if you're you know, self-employed and you don't claim that much income because you write off as much as possible, 
there's options where we can still get you into a mortgage, but we might have to go what we call alternative or A minus or B lending, as you would hear it. And they're lenders that will take on slightly higher risk mortgages or profiles. So in turn, they will charge you a higher interest rate and charge a a lender fee. So kind of a a commitment fee for going with that lender. So it's not, you don't necessarily, everyone doesn't have to be within those ratios, but you have to be if you are less than 20% down or want kind of those low, low rates that you Google online. (laughs) So if you go with the alternative lender, we'll call them, what kind of a difference would it make? Obviously, I'm sure that's going to range a lot depending on on your your credit quality and things like that. But are you talking like you go from a two to a seven or is uh, what's it look like typically? You're right. It does range depending on the overall situations, case by case. But I mean, we have some alternative lendings right now, private B lendings, sorry, not private, but B lenders that are I could probably do 2.99. Okay. So it's not a big difference where, I mean, I'm doing a conventional purchase right now for 2.2-ish, but it could go up to 4. It could go up to 4% depending. And on top of that, behind that, I guess, third option would be private lenders. So that's when you're way outside of the conventional box and you still need to get a mortgage. They can range up to 7 to 10 to 11% depending on the situation. So do you privates as well? I do. Yeah, I do. Okay. So would that be, would privates be corporations, individuals, or what, uh, like typically would you like? Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So we have mixed, some mortgage investment corporations. So we have a number of them in the city that we use. Uh, We have ours with Mortgage Brokers Ottawa, so Advanced MIC, MERS, Magenta, Westboro. Uh, There's a number in the city. So they're what we would call our mortgage investment companies. And then there's strictly privates. There's lawyers that Mm -hmm. lend out money. So there's both options that you could look at. So would you do financing on more than just residential? Like would you do cottages and commercial? Do you do those kind of properties as well? Yeah, I can do cottages. We can do land. Commercial, I prefer to refer off to one of my experts in the company. So we can do it. And I do refer to him quite frequently. He's been in the business many, many years and is the commercial expert. So I I leave him to it. But yeah, pretty much mortgage anything. (laughs) So we've seen the housing market uh, take off. Have you noticed anything different in the cottage world? Because it seems like maybe that's a more mature market. Have you seen that change at all? Yeah, people are definitely trying to run into the city. (laughs) They are trying to buy cottages or buy land to to build down the road. So we are seeing more and more cottage properties and we're seeing the prices in them jump like crazy too. So it's, that's probably a tougher market than residential within the city, to be honest. So how do you lend against the cottage is it the same kind of rules? Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, it depends. So we have what we call like a four season cottage or a three season cottage. So if it's four season cottage with year round access, it would be the same type of lending as your residential home here in the city. If there is a three season, so maybe it's lake water intake. So, uh, you know, in the winter, there's not going to be any water intake. If it's not insulated or heated, it'd be considered a three season. Then we use one of our default insurer programs for that. So you pay a little bit of a premium with the lender, whether you're putting 20% down or less, you pay the premium either way. But interest rates are standard rates. So it's pretty much the same. How do you lend on land? little harder. Yeah, I guess. Most of my lenders, yeah, I probably have two or three lenders that I know of. I'm sure if anyone sees this, they'll reach out to me after I was going, I lend on land. And usually they're looking for a 50% down payment on the land. Okay. Because, you know, it's harder to resell. They don't have, you know, the the house to actually have as a, a liar or a collateral on it. So sure. it's a little bit harder for land, but we could do it. 
So uh, are you still seeing people use their first time home buyers plan when they're when they're buying houses? Do you see that kind of activity still? And maybe you could I mean, I could certainly describe that, but maybe you could describe what a first time home buyer is because I still got clients and kids. They they ask about putting money into their RSP versus putting money into TFSA. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about how that how that works. Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, we're still using the first time home buyers incentive, or sorry, uh, first time home buyers plan. So what that would be is if you have uh, RSP savings, you're allowed to withdraw them. Oh, you're stumping me right now. Thirty five thousand per yes. individual. Yeah. There, yeah, thirty-five per individual buying the home yeah. for the purchase of a new qualifying home, and you have fifteen years to pay it back. I used to rhyme that off super yeah. quick in the bank. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fifteen years to, to pay it back. So you're kind of borrowing from yourself, tax-free. So we are seeing it, but you know, honestly, if it's a first-time home buyer and they're trying to get in the market a little bit younger, they don't have a huge amount. So those are probably the clients I'm seeing the parents gifted, but um, it, it's still being used. It's still a great program. Tax-free is just, you know, tax-free savings. You can pull out for any purpose whatsoever. So I think people still forget about the, that, the heart of the home buyers. I guess if you're a high income earner when you're young, which there's some in the city, obviously some of the tech people have, uh, have hit it off pretty quickly. So it'd be in their, in their cases, it makes sense to be maxing their RSPs and then pull them back out tax-free. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, there's been a few clients where, you know, they've had the savings sitting maybe outside of an RSP, a savings account, a tax-free account, and we knew that they weren't buying a home for the next three to four months. And, you know, income, it's very particular person, client that we would advise this to, but, you know, I would advise make the contribution, put your 20, 30, 40,000 in your RSP, as long as you're contributed to the RSP and it can stay in there for 90 days, we're allowed to pull it for the home buyers. So, you know, you're putting it in, you're getting your tax break and you're, you're taking out and using it what you were for anyway. So it does, you know, if I see that with my clients, I do advise them to do it that way. But usually by the time they come to me, they're making an offer and buying next month. So it's a little too late. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, that's market market driven, isn't it? Yeah, people are mm-hmm. excited about what's happening. It's uh, I can it's really hard to believe. I mean, you're right in in the midst of it right now, and we see it in the papers, and we see Ottawa going vertical. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I guess it's uh, it's got to be hard to keep up. It is. Things change every day, <laughs> and the big thing too with. Uh, being a mortgage agent versus working in the bank. And there are some bank mortgage specialists that only do mortgages. But for the most part, if you walk into a branch, you're getting someone that has to do everything. They have to know how to do bank accounts and credit cards and savings and investments and mortgages. So they're not going to be able to keep up with the numerous changes and the rate options and, you know, the out of the box deals. So when this is all you do, live, breathe, eat, sleep, <laughs> it's it's easier to stay on top of it. I've seen that with with your work uh, for Stand. So, you know, what, uh, obviously there's been quite a few different kinds of mortgages these days. And I know Scotia has a step plan and all these different companies have their different kind of mortgages. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about the different kinds and, and the different features maybe, and just some uh, kind of understanding for, for people. So there's your, your standard mortgage where you just have your, your 25 year amortized mortgage and you make your monthly payments on it. Any type of mortgage lender that I would work with usually allows a annual prepayment of a lump sum prepayment of either anywhere from 10 to 20%. They all kind of vary depending on the lender and the whether it's fixed or variable. They also allow increase for payments. So if your monthly payments, you know, $1,000, 
you can increase that by 20% every year as well. So that's two benefits to help you pay more principal off on your mortgage and bring down your amortization over time. Then there's the mortgages like the Scotia Step, like you mentioned. And we have a few lenders that offer that. MCAP is one of them where they have a mortgage and a line of credit component. So it's one charge against the property for X amount. And then we can say, you know, the mortgage is for 500000 The line of credit is for 200000 And you don't have to be using line of credit. It can just sit there for future emergencies, redo your roof in five years, whatever the case is. It is secured against the home. So it's usually a much lower interest rate than an unsecured line of credit that you'd get at your bank. Mm -hmm. And as you pay your mortgage balance down every month, the available uh, credit limit on the line of credit increases. So by the time your mortgage is fully paid off, you might have, you know, an $800,000 line of credit at your disposal to use as you see fit. More and more, we're seeing people get these lines of credits and use them to buy rental properties. I think that, you know, having having done this and obviously owned a number of homes too, I still think people don't understand the nuances of, of mortgages. So maybe even maybe talk a little bit about how if you're breaking your mortgage or you're buying your or you're you're shifting, you're refinance, you're breaking a mortgage, typically how are, how's that calculated and and uh, what what kind of charge does that look like? Yeah, that's a that's a one of the favorite questions I think, <laughs> and it's really hard to give a, a straight answer on it because it, it's really the calculation behind the scenes is a little little complex. But I mentioned earlier that my mono line lenders have usually more favorable calculations for the prepayment. They're breaking their mortgage and things getting rid of it penalty calculations than the big banks do. Reason being is because they calculate your penalty based on the interest rate that you're actually paying, whereas the big banks will calculate the penalty based on uh, what they call their their contract rate, their poster rate, sorry, poster rate. So if you go on a big bank's website right now, you're going to see a poster rate of five and change. And then when you go into branch, you say, well, your rate's actually going to be two. We're going to take you know 3% off of that for relationship pricing. But when you go and break your mortgage, they're going to charge you a pre-penalty, what's called the IRD, so interest rate differential. And it's a number of factors, but it's based on what your current interest rate is, what your interest rate is, sorry, versus current interest rates. And they don't use your interest rate. They use this 5%. So it can make the differential much larger than it needs to be. It depends on how far into your term you are, what your balance is. So there's a number of different factors there. It's a reinvestment rate which you could probably speak more to than I could. So that's your standard. If you're in a five-year fixed or a three-year fixed or any type of fixed product, you would be your penalty would be based off that IRD. If you're in a variable rate product, your penalty is based off of three months worth of interest. So it can be a lot less. It's a lot more, a lot easier to calculate. You take your balance and your interest rate and figure it out. Or we can avoid penalties altogether. If you're just simply buying this house to move to this house, we can port your mortgage is what we would call it. So as long as a mortgage amount stays the same or is increased, and depending on the lender, you have a certain amount of days to do the buy and the sale, we can simply just move your mortgage over to the new address and avoid any penalties for you. So there are options to try to avoid a penalty if you're moving to a new home. And so how have you seen uh, rates change, I guess? Uh, I know we obviously we came down pretty hard. Are we starting to see them creep back up again or is it? uh... Yeah, absolutely. I would say a little bit over half of a percent, probably. 
in the past two, two to three weeks. And it happened pretty quickly. Yeah, it happened really quick. And it kept just happening. So we were getting notices from our lenders, rates are going up. If you have any pre approvals, you know, call it to your clients, get your deals in now. So it's great because our lenders do give us that notice, which is fantastic. So if we do have anything that was kind of on the fence, we can jump on it. Yeah, we've seen at least a half of a percent increase in some cases over the last two to three weeks. Okay. And I think it's, you know, based on the bond market, which again is your area of expertise there, but uh, that goes up and mortgage rates go up. So, and this is usually the time of year where we see them going down because it's a spring market. Other lenders are trying to compete with each other to win the business and we're seeing the exact opposite. So it's throwing people for a little bit of a loop. I guess. Well, I think rates are coming down in the back half, if that means anything. But uh, <laughs> so that's that's positive for sure. So what what's the typical mix? Have you been seeing people coming in? Do they typically do variable still or fixed or what? What are what are people doing? Because I mean, statistics looks like they've been primarily doing variable. But what are you seeing? Last year, I'd say I'm probably doing more fixed than anything, just because they were so low. It was extremely low. The past month, I've been recommending variable because they're still so low. Like we're still 1% below prime, prime being 2.45. In certain cases, every mortgage is a little bit different. So we can do 1.45 on a five-year variable. We don't have a crystal ball, but I believe that it's going to be some time before the Bank of Canada starts raising their rates again. Why not ride it out? I mean, historically, variable has always come ahead over fixed. So if you can stomach the maybe a little bit of fluctuations here and there, it's it's the way to go. So tell me how that works, like a variable, like a five-year five-year variable, you're saying 145. So what mm-hmm. what does your, is your mortgage payment the same, but your principal and interest changes or your payment changes? Maybe describe that a little bit. The lenders that I use, the payment changes. Okay. So that's another big conversation I have with my clients. If they're first-time home buyers and are on their budget, or even if they're not, and they just like know when their payment's fixed and they don't have to worry about it, uh, it's not going to be the product for them because it does fluctuate. There are certain lenders out there, I'm not sure if they still do it, that it would stay the same. What they would change is the ratio of principal versus interest. Uh, and then at the end of the five years, if not enough interest got paid off, they would say, oh, you owe us a big payment. So it's called a, a balloon payment. So wow. you owe us $10,000 because you didn't pay off enough principal and we can't extend your amortization. So not sure if they still do it that way, but now the lenders that I use, the payment fluctuates with the interest rate. So what's the appetite for that? So mm-hmm. with people that get mortgages, do they like the consistent payments every month or do you convince them more of the not convince them but do they are they okay with the variable like what is it like 50 50 or or what do you find probably more fixed to be honest probably more people go fixed i have a very detailed conversation with them i make sure that they're going to be comfortable they're not going to lose sleep at night a good thing about the variable is any again any of the lenders i would recommend they do allow you to convert it to a fixed so if interest rates do start creeping up a little bit above their comfort level, we can contact the lender and convert it to a fixed rate at that time. So what's that process like? Is it a phone call and then you convert it or is it like, yeah, pretty, pretty much. much? Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's not a full application. It's just a phone call, yeah. a sign here and you're done. I'm learning so much about mortgages. I had no idea. We're going to dive into the mortgage insurance. So we're going to have that conversation. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about uh, mortgage insurance and uh, how that works in those conversations. So I mentioned a little bit earlier, so default insurers, uh, we have three of them that we use in Canada. CMHC is the big one. Most people have heard of the Genworth, previously Genworth, now Seguin, and then Canada Guarantee. So these default insurers come into play when you're purchasing a home. 
only purchasing and you are using less than a 20% down payment. So you're considered a high ratio purchase. And basically you pay this default insurance to, for lack of a better way to put it, cover the bank's butt. If you don't make your mortgage payment, they're insured on it. So the premiums are tiered based on the amount of down payment. So if you put minimum 5% down payment, the default insurance premiums are going to be 4%. And that 4% of your mortgage is added to the mortgage. So it's not out of pocket at time of closing. We just roll it into your mortgage. It's spread out through the lifetime and it's a one-shot deal. If you put 10% down, the premium goes from 4 to 3.1. And if you put 15% down, you go to 2.8. Anywhere in between those, those tiers, are the rates are still the same. So it doesn't really matter. But once you hit that 20 mark, you don't have to pay it. And the three different insurers that you say, is it static? Why do you choose a different one? Like what's the, what's the, how do you do that? What's the rationale? Some, we don't have a choice. The lender gets to pick. So some of our like monoline lenders, they only use two of them say, so we know if we want to go to one particular one and they don't use it, we don't go to that lender. There's been a lot in the the media over the past year and stuff about, about certain default insurer companies. So they've one particular made some pretty drastic changes to some rules. I guess about a year ago now, that put some people out of the ranking with that insurer. So we have to request a particular insurer going in to a lender. So they, they changed the, the minimum credit score. So normally minimum credit score is usually based up to the lender. So they look at the risk. And if you know there's a good reason for a low credit score, they can go to the default insurer and say, we're we like this file. This is what happened. You know, we believe this client's going to be good. This particular insurer decided that they're going to do a minimum of 680, which puts quite a few people out of out of the the rankings. So yeah, so that's a, you make a great point. I mean, the like the the benefit that you have is you know if you get a client with a credit score that isn't great, you can choose different places. But with the bank, like it's rigid, right? Like if you're in this box, you're gone. You don't you don't fit in. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the how what goes into the credit score because I still think people aren't uh, familiar with that and maybe talk a little bit about that. Maybe talk a little bit about the different levels too. It's kind of still a little bit of a, a mystery <laughs> to yeah. me even, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because you see someone that has, you know, a few credit facilities have always paid on time and for some reason their score comes in at 650. And then you see someone else that had a late payment or whatever and their score comes in at 725. But I mean, really it's based on the number of, credit facilities that you have. They like two to three different types of facilities, like a credit card. So that's a revolving type of credit, an installment, so like a car loan or a student loan repayment or something or mortgage. It's an installment loan that you make. So they like two to three different types of facilities on your credit. Usually you'd like to see about a balance of 2000 or more if you hold a credit card, because you don't ever want to go over, I think it's even dropped a little bit more like 50%, but I always used to tell clients, don't go over 70% of your limit. So if your limit's $1,000, don't ever spend more than seven dollars on your credit card keep it far away from that max limit as possible because as soon as you start getting to that max credit limit it's going to start affecting your score and then if the interest rate interest charges come in at the end of the month and you're right at the max and then they charge you interest you're going over the credit limit that really hurts your score so it's always good to keep it as low as possible keep credit facilities for a good amount of time like if you've had a bank card for 10 years and then you change banks for whatever reason I recommend keeping that credit card <laughs> because it shows history. So you've built a history of that credit card. You've had good payments, whatever the case may be. But as soon as you shut that down, that's gone. And then you're starting over from scratch with your new bank. So having long tenure with credit facilities is good as well. Credit scores can range from 
zero to super poor is low 500s. Okay. The best in Canada is 900. Okay. We call that the unicorn. Probably seen four in 15 years. So it's funny when you get that, you're like, oh my God, I have to call somebody and tell somebody that this is happening. <laughs> it's good to have a number of different facilities and please make your payments on time. It's <laughs> the biggest thing. Don't be a day late. Those 900 scores would probably be good clients for us, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good thinking, Ben. Good thinking. Scott, any, an eye out for you. Scott, any questions popping in as we go through here? Oh, I got lots of questions here. You know, you're... You're really just trying to get in the weeds of the mortgage broker industry here. Hey, you just keep asking those questions, digging a little deeper. I'm just trying, I'm just trying to help people understand. There's lots of uh, nuances within it. Yeah, that's why you're great. Yeah, you go, you just go deeper than anybody else does. You know, it's great. One thing Renee that Renee mentioned, and Ben, maybe this question might be more for you, but maybe for both of you, is that Renee mentioned that there's times where you can pay twenty percent down on the principal of your of your home, but would we recommend the Heart Investment Group? Would you recommend doing that, or is there a better place to put your money? This is a great question. I think it's going to be a personal answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's going to. I'd say, you know, there's there's an easy argument to be made that if I can't do one point four five percent, then I'm not doing a good job. So I would say in most cases, the answer is probably no, I wouldn't recommend it. But each individual client has their own their own goals and objectives. But, you know, if it's it's a simple comparison for me, they got a 4% mortgage, they're paying 4% on it, then maybe I'd consider it. But, you know, in, in mm-hmm. today's market with rates where they are, typically wouldn't, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be a recommendation. Same. I mean, I tell clients all the time, I've, I've had for years since the same thing. Like you said, everyone's a little different. Some clients, it's just they want that mortgage gone and they don't care about anything else. But if you can sit back and look at it, and a lot of my income property investors, they do the same. Like they want to buy the rental properties, put minimum down. They don't care that the amortization is stretched out for 30 years because it's just a part of their portfolio. They would rather take that money and invest it than pay down their mortgages. So I, I agree. Yeah, I do agree. It's a personal preference. My ex-neighbor always said that... Uh, as long as I have a mortgage, I have a problem, right? So like, he didn't feel like he was free until he was really debt-free, right? And I think that's just a mindset that people have, right? And if if they can't, you know, as as long as they have that hanging over their head, they don't feel like they they, they can be successful. So, yeah, for sure. I think that a lot has to do with, with how you're brought up and how you think about money. And, you know, I think age group makes a big difference too. You know, older people definitely don't like that mortgage. It just it feels like they have those flashbacks of paying twenty percent interest on their mortgages, and they don't want to ever feel at risk of that. But uh, you know, I I don't think there's any risk of rates going anywhere. I mean, I think rates are pinned near zero for the foreseeable future. Let's take the uh, let's have a group discussion here. Let's take the actual somebody's home, right? Their familial home that they own out of the equation and, and let's just talk investment property versus the market. What are some of the pros and cons? I guess we could see on that and maybe I have a bit of a debate here about uh, what may what may be a better investment vehicle. Yeah, so look, I mean, I think that uh, we can go at this from many different angles. I can talk from uh, first-hand experience about owning a rental property previously. 
being a landlord, owning a triplex. And I can talk about a personal feelings around how that works. I think some of it has to do with what it, I mean, I guess the question is what's a better investment? You know, the one thing that real estate always has versus investing is real estate as leverage. You know, so to, to Renee's point, if you put down 5% into a house, you're only putting down 5% of the principal. And so the one thing I think that often doesn't get calculated in, you know, if you put a million dollars into a house and you put down 50 grand, you got a million dollar asset. You know, so if you went into investment portfolio and you're able to put down 50 grand into a million dollar investment portfolio, history shows that the, that the markets outperform real estate in the markets. You know, you'll get leverage. You, know, you can't put fifty thousand dollars into a million dollar investment portfolio and get exposure to it. So, you know, I think that uh, sometimes there's a misunderstanding around the two of them. Ben, you're arguing for the wrong side here. No, I'm not. I mean, I think if you do that comparison, if you think about it, I'm fine. It's great. No, but it's true. And you think about it. if you could take fifty grand and get a million dollar investment portfolio, wouldn't lots of people do that? Yeah, great deal. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. What? Yeah. The right deal. Well, I mean, they're going to make more money too. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> but sure. real estate as real estate grows because they get the leverage. And yeah. you know, people, I think, misunderstand the fact that if you're investing in, in equity markets, you don't have the ability to get the same kind of leverage that, that real estate gives you. So we need to find a creative, pro- creative product that can do that. I'm on the same page with you, obviously, um, a little bias on my side, but you know, it's having a, a tad bit, like a little sprinkle of, you know, the financial advice uh, background. It, it's a mixed portfolio for people. I mean, like you said, real estate's great to invest in. Who saw a stable, very low risk, 13, 18% return last year? If you owned a home in Ottawa, you did. So it's, it, it's a little bit crazy, but I mean, you can't obviously have all of your eggs in one basket. So, you know, that's where you come in. It gets tricky. I don't know if you want to go down that rabbit hole at income properties, but uh, it, it gets a little bit trickier as you try to dig into those. And they are a little bit different than buying your primary home. You saw those kinds of returns in real estate and in Bitcoin. You saw Bitcoin 400% return. So, but uh, I digress. There's money to be made. I mean, definitely. I mean, real estate versus asymmetric returns aren't even in the same category. I mean, real estate has been a, a, a stable cash flow tool. It's different too from a, you're not, you're not comparing apples to apples, but the market definitely has those kinds of, I mean, Bitcoin. Like you have those kinds of things that can return a multiple. You're not going to get that in real estate ever unless uh, you hold it for 25 years. I think that it works from a rental perspective. It works for some people. As I said, I owned and we owned a property and uh, I'd never do it again. <laughs> it just it just wasn't our thing. It wasn't our thing. It's a lot of work and uh, you know you have to you have to think about what you're doing. And also you need to be able to make the cash flow. Like if you're not handy, you gotta be able to make the cash flow in order to to pay for someone taking care of your property. And oftentimes that doesn't get factored in. I mean, I know we there's a book out there written by a guy that used to work in real estate at CABC World Markets and he wrote a book about renting versus buying. I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but maybe we'll put it in the notes. And uh, it's an interesting read. And they do he does compare the different the different cities across Canada and say, well, in this city, 
it's more effective if you rent, or in this city, it'd be better if you buy, just from the perspective of where the real estate market's at and you know some of the inputs that go into owning a home that people don't typically think about. So you know, I think that that's a decent frame of reference, too, to look at if you're considering it. What about from um, a mortgage standpoint, as far as investment properties are concerned? I know, like, what are some of the requirements as far as down payments, as far as what you look at as, I know there's cash flow plays into effect there as well, if they have multiple properties. What, what do you typically look at for investment properties? Uh, so right off the bat, the first thing I tell my clients is minimum 20% down. So if it's a rental property, it's a minimum 20% down. Then half the time, the conversation stops right there uh, <laughs> because they, they don't have it. So 20% down payment, the l- lenders are going to put a little bit of a premium on the interest rate as a rental property. It's deemed a little bit riskier to have vacancies. Uh, the person living in the rental property might not take care of it as much as you would if it was your home. So there's a little bit added risk there. So the lenders usually add anywhere from 0.15 to a quarter of a percent or maybe a bit more sometimes to the standard rates for rentals. And then we have what's a TCR. It's a debt calculator ratio. And basically every lender has their own. So every lender is a little bit different. So they take the mortgage amount, the mortgage payment, property tax, condo fees is applicable, home insurance. uh, They have a percentage for vacancy. There's maintenance fees, things like that. So basically if you have a $2,000 rental income, and your mortgage is fifteen hundred. In your mind, you're going to make in five hundred dollars. Not really, right? You have like the property tax and the maintenance fee. If the furnace blows, it's your job. So it is harder to qualify. And the big kicker is for the people that want to build the income property empires. Uh, most of my lenders top off at five, so maximum five rentals. So it gets tough. And then you're looking at going into the B world for the most part for lending. So those rates jump up again. Maximum five rental properties per person, yeah. or per, I guess, owner per person. person. Mm-hmm. Why would they do that? Like some lenders allow it. Like Desjardins is a lender they have unlimited, but it's, it's so it, it really depends. A lot of people want to put their income properties in a hold call, like a corporation name for tax purposes. Out of my 60 plus lenders, I have one that I'm allowed to do that with. So it, it really narrows the options. It's, it's a tough it's, it's tough. It's a tough market to get in for sure. Yeah. So I know like I helped a guy who was buying an eight unit and I had to do four at CIBC and then we did four at Scotia because they wouldn't do them both at the same place. I mean, it was ridiculous. It's the same, same thing, but they didn't want to take the risk. So. That seems odd too. Like if they're... Did they make them go commercial at all or... No, they let, they let them get away with that, yeah. It seems odd that when you get to those numbers that you seem like you're actually being successful with it. So why would they stop you there? I wonder. But I guess it's risk, right? It's, it all comes down to risk. So do they get to use the cash flow from the property as part of their income? Is that is that going to? Yeah. 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 100% if there is some. <laughs> After all the calculations, like it'll pop at a number. One of our simplest lenders, it basically they take the mortgage payment and they take 50% of the rental income. And that's, that's what you use. So if, you know, you have a surplus, great. You add it as income in the, the income section of the application. If you have a deficit, then you have to add it as a liability on the application. So it, there's some lenders that are a little bit different. Like there's a million different scenarios, but it, yeah, it's very rarely do we see a surplus on paper. Just the last question on that. So 
So do you see a lot of people trying to get in the real estate investment world? Like, do you have a lot of clients that have real estate investments? Something people want to get in. I think I think it's one of those things that's attractive, but when you get into it, like Ben knows, right? That they don't realize how much work it can be. Yeah, it's actually a lot of young people I'm seeing trying to get in. I don't know if mom and dad's one of them, they wish they'd done it 20 years ago and they're wanting to do it, but it's young people that are buying rental properties and still living at home with mom and dad. So maybe it's a good strategy for them. But I know when I was that age, I, I wanted out. I just, <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Still the amount of people that I, I see trying to do it. Yeah, I think it's exciting. I mean, I got my wife and I bought a, bought a, a triplex when we were still in our 20s, I think, probably late 20s. It was the only way we'd get into the market. Uh, we wanted to be downtown. I was telling Scott earlier, some of the uh, some of the handyman work I had to do around the place wasn't uh, wasn't <laughs> up my alley. But, you know, if you if you can do your own work and do all those things, I'm, uh, you know, it's, it's something uh, I think that's exciting and attractive uh, for, for people to get involved in. But, you know, it's, it ends up being a pile of work for sure. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think this has been great. I just looked though. I was just looking over to see if there's anything I missed. I wanted to cover with you. Um, was there anything else that you thought uh, that people should know? Anything else that you'd recommend before we go? I think you've covered a lot of things and gone into great detail. I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to add? Uh, not really. I mean, just if get a pre-approval. Talk to somebody. If it's not a mortgage agent, selfish plug, I'd be your best bet to go to. Talk to someone before you jump in and start looking at homes. Uh, make sure you have your ducks in a row. And, uh, you know, don't be afraid of the rates. People are panicking right now because we're seeing two and a quarter. When I started doing mortgages 12 years ago or so, they were 6%. Maybe more like 14 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's not a scary time. But yeah, talk to a professional before you start jumping into looking at homes and make sure you got your ducks lined up. Just before we leave that, how long can you lock in that uh, pre-approval? Like how far out can you go like if somebody does that? 120 days. Scott, I think uh, I think we're, we're ready to, to, to wind it up. All right. How do we normally wind this up? I don't remember. We just uh, click the button. We just wait for me to click the button and hang up. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Renee, for for coming on. We really appreciate it. And we'll definitely have you on again. I wasn't sure. You're like, how is this going to you know fit in the investment world? But you de- we definitely kind of linked it all together. So we appreciate you coming on. And uh, again, if anybody's looking for you, it's uh, Renee McNeil. What's your email address? At mortgagebrokersottawa.com. Longest email in the world. <laughs> Type in Renee McNeil in Google with Renee with an I, and I'm the only one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the best bet. Okay, well, that does it for episode number 12. Thanks for watching and listening. We'll see you next week. Yeah.